With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Music Laws Fighting for Justice Radio. Don't underestimate the other guys. Green. Robert, Mark, and Reed. You have the right to remain silent. Let me shut up. It's 30 minutes away. I'll be there in 10. They see me rolling. They hate Music Laws Fighting for Justice Radio analyzes civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and covers all legal current events. Each week, Music Laws Fighting for Justice features newsmakers, attorneys, media personalities, celebrities, experts, business people, and so much more. Music Laws Fighting for Justice. Straight talk, no nonsense. I'm going to make them an offer again with you. Now it's time for Music Laws Fighting for Justice Radio. Here are your hosts, Robert, Mark, and Reed. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the show, and thanks very much for listening. We really appreciate it. We have another fantastic show for you today. And remember to check out our website at kuzyklaw.com, K-U-Z-Y-K-L-A-W.com, and let your friends know that they can listen to the show on our podcast on iTunes at blogtalkradio.com slash Here on Kuzyklaw's Fighting for Justice Radio with Reed Brightman, Robert Ryan, and Mark Leonardo, we analyze civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and we cover, cover legal current events. Today we have four news stories that are really interesting, and if we have time, we'll do Reed's rant and wrap things up from there. Again, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Cusick Laws Fighting for Justice. Now, the first story of the week is a very interesting case about that tragic death of Christina Grimmie. She was sued, she was um, shot. Uh, after a concert. Uh, Robert, tell us about this story. Yeah, really sad. I think we all remember back in June when Christina Grimmie, that uh, singing phenomenon who came up with the voice at the popular television show, um, she won the competition. She got a recording contract. Uh, she had a concert uh, series, um, and she had a concert in Orlando at the Plaza Live, and following the concert, they had what's called a meet-and-greet where fans can come up and they usually give an item to the star to sign or autograph or something like that. And apparently a deranged fan, his name was Kevin Loibel, uh, gained access to the concert. And then uh, afterwards at the meet-and-greet, uh, he shot her uh, and uh, killed her and uh, then committed suicide immediately thereafter once he was tackled by Christina's brother, Marcus, who was also injured in the melee. What a nightmare! It, it, it's just a that's just a horrible thing. What a tragedy with a 22-year-old girl at the beginning of a what was obviously going to be a fabulous career. But how is AE AEG Live? How are they responsible for that? They couldn't predict that. Well, here's the theory. Um, you know, uh, the 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 shooter, uh, this deranged fan, Kevin Loibel, gained access with two Glock 9mm handguns. Uh, on his person, uh, extra ammunition, plus like a nine-inch hunting knife strapped to his ankle. And apparently the security for for the concert consisted 
basically of checking the bags or the handbags of the female patrons. There were no pat-downs and when there were no metal detectors. Now, I have been to concerts recently myself, like uh, here in Los Angeles at Staples Center. You're required to go through a metal detector to gain access right. to Staples Center for a concert or for any type of uh, event at that at that facility. In this particular Even facility, there wasn't... Yesterday, I went to Magic yeah. Mountain and they had metal, det- metal detectors. Yeah, so metal, metal, metal detectors, pat-downs, um, according to the lawsuit, this is the type of security that should have been in place in connection with this concert, especially because the fans were going to be allowed access directly to the performers. And according to the theory of the lawsuit, which is filed on behalf of uh, Christina's mom and dad, Tina and Albert, and also her brother Marcus, who, as I indicated, was injured when he tackled the shooter, um, that's what should have been in place instead of just you know a couple of security guards looking in handbags. And that's their theory of why AEG Live, the concert promoter, and also the owner of the facility, Plaza Live, should be should be held liable. Now, it's interesting. They're they're claiming in the lawsuit that she would have made millions of co- of course from her singing and uh, career and from her concert appearances. But they're also they issued a statement saying that another reason aside from money is that they're hoping to change the way uh, concert promoters handle this type of situation and that in fact if anything comes out of this they're hoping that more security of the type that they say should have been in place um, on the, the night that uh, their daughter was killed uh, should be the new standard and that's what they're hoping for in filing this lawsuit. That's very interesting and I mean, obviously, in order to prove uh, this is a negligence suit, so they're going to prove that the they're going to try and prove that AEG, AEG Live and the and the um, uh, Philharmonic, the owner of the property, that they had a duty to Grimmy to perf- to protect her, and they breached the duty by not having adequate security. Is there? I, I just find it interesting that you know the law obviously doesn't require uh, that there be metal detectors. Otherwise, they would have complied with that. So, well, that's interesting. Um, of, of course, they have to show that that yeah that that uh, that AEG Live, uh, the concert promoter, and also the facility themselves, they they should have provided pat downs or metal de- metal detectors. And it seems fairly fairly easy to establish that had they had metal detectors, they would have been able to prevent this because he wouldn't have been able to gain access to the facility with two two handguns. And of course, you right. know, we've had these situations before. You know, we had John Lennon, he was he was shot and killed by a deranged fan, although that was on a public street. Selena right. Uh, the Mexican uh, uh, pop star, she was shot and killed by a deranged fan, the, he- the, the head of her fan club, as a matter of fact. So I think the theory of the lawsuit is that, hey, we know that there are people out there who get obsessed about celebrities and that who become you know, focused on them, and that as a result, they're a threat. And given the fact that the threat is known, um, then something more should have been done that would have been able to prevent this particular tragedy. Although, of course, it's going to be too late for Christina. Right. Uh, there's also something we said that, you know, celebrities when they're doing public appearances, they're taking they they're taking a risk, and they understand that. Uh, for example, Barbara Streisand, she stopped doing public appearances. She stopped doing concerts for I think about 40 years of her career because she had received death threats and she got worried about being on stage, and she didn't want to take that risk. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, uh, but. Obviously, it's a big tragedy, and I, I, you know, it's not, it's not too burdensome on concert venues to have metal detectors and have better security. 
All right, so let's move on to the next story, Mark's story about uh, uh, the families of some of the Orlando shooting victims are suing uh, three tech giants for fueling ISIS growth. And they're basically claiming that uh, Google, Twitter, and one of the other ones, Facebook, I guess, is uh, that they're they're providing material assistance to terrorist organizations. Tell us about this story, Mark. Sure. As you said, Facebook, Twitter, and Google, they were all sued in federal court in the Eastern District of Michigan, which is Detroit. I don't know why they sued there, yeah, but your um, all three <laughs> my hometown. All three families um were victims from that Pulse nightclub massacre earlier this year where forty nine people were killed and fifty three were injured. So the families are suing the, these tech giants for providing material support to ISIS, claiming that the three companies knowingly and recklessly let accounts associated with ISIS exist. Um, the suit claims that those accounts therefore allow the terrorist group to use social networks as a tool for spreading extremist propaganda, raising funds, and attracting new recruits. The lawsuit also alleges that um, these tech giants help radicalize Uh, the Pulse nightclub gunman, which was 29-year-old Omar Mateen. ISIS called this shooter one of their fighters. And uh, investigators eventually determined that the group had inspired him to carry out this attack. Now, the suit alleges that because the suspicious activity used by ISIS and other nefarious organizations engaged in illegal activities, it is easily detectable and preventable and that the defendants are fully aware that these organizations are using their networks to engage in illegal activity, all of which just demonstrates that the defendants are acting knowingly and recklessly allowing such illegal conduct. That's what they're claiming in their lawsuit. Now, this suit huh. comes just a few weeks after Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Microsoft. They all announced that they're building a database to help track and remove terrorist content from their sites. And the three companies plus Microsoft said earlier this month they would coordinate more to remove this extremist content and they're going to share digital fingerprints with each other to try to help do this. Well, can you really do this, this Tony? Isn't this like like suing the phone company because somebody says something bad over a telephone line? Exactly. I don't know how they get around the Communications Decency Act, the the, the one that – that's the 1996 act that that protects – Social media sites like Google and Facebook, uh, Facebook and Twitter and stuff, um, for the content of third parties, they they really can't control that, and they don't, they don't, they're not, they're not. Yeah, contributing I, I to thought creating these providers, I thought internet service providers couldn't be held liable for the content that's transmitted over their over their networks. <clears throat> let, right. Let me, let me talk about that. So back in August, uh, the, there was a lawsuit against Twitter with a similar type of argument, um, claiming that there was material support to ISIS. And uh, there was a lawsuit brought by, t- by families of two American contractors who were killed in an attack in Jordan that was allegedly inspired by ISIS. And um, Twitter won that case because of the law that Reed just mentioned. Um, what's it called? The, the Decency Act or something? Decency Act. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, in this case, the one we have now, the one that just got filed, um, there's an attorney by the name of Keith Altman. He's also filed a lawsuit back in June for a family of a California college student that was killed in last year's attack in Paris. And he sued Facebook, Google, and Twitter as well. So this is the same attorney, two different lawsuits. So here's what's interesting. He's attempting a a novel legal strategy. The federal law protects the publishers from posting content created by third parties, which is what you just said. But Altman says that the Facebook, Google, and Twitter should be held liable 
for what users post on their services because they pair their content with advertising. So Altman concedes that these companies, they don't create the post and they don't create the advertising, but they do combine the two, which he contends creates a new unique content by choosing which advertisement to combine with the posting. So he says that they create unique content by combining these ISIS postings with advertisements in a way that is specifically targeted at the viewer. So he thinks this is going to be different than the other lawsuits, and this is the angle he's going on. Well, we just had a lawsuit here in California. I think it was filed by the California Attorney General against a website called Backpage. And she filed this lawsuit against the owners and the operators of Backpage, which is essentially like a like a bulletin board posted forum, like Angie's List or something like that, accusing them of pimping and pandering because this apparently had turned into some sort of hotbed for prostitutions or prostitutes to advertise their services or escort services. And that case was right. thrown out in about five seconds flat because they said right. that service providers are not responsible for content, period. And that was that. It took them about five seconds to make that decision. How, how is this one any different just by saying that, oh, they have the ads and that's how they make their money? I, I, I'm not following that line of reasoning. Well, he's, It's he's a good point, they... Robert, because, you know, if, if, if this new lawsuit, if, if that theory were to have any legs at all on it, it would completely destroy the whole point of the law because all of these – that's Facebook – and Twitter, they survive on their advertising revenue. That's all they have. All of the content on Twitter and Facebook is paired with some type of advertising. Now, if they, I can see maybe an argument if they were pairing ISIS ads with come buy your AR-15 here or here's where you can buy grenades or you know, rocket launchers or something. But they're not. They're, they're, they're pairing it with all the same kind of advertising that we all, that we all see. And this lawyer, I think this is more of a well, honestly, I think it's it's a it's a big stretch and it's more of a publicity stunt. He's getting his name out there. Uh but there's no way he, this this is this is settled law. He's not gonna get anywhere on this. It's gonna get thrown out. It should be thrown out. I, well, I think what he's trying to do in addition to getting money of course is is to do what's happening is where the these big companies are now um working together to try to take content off the internet. I think it was um who was it? Twitter. Um, they said they've suspended 360,000 accounts since mid-2015 for violating policies, policies related to promotion of terrorism. So they're, tr- they're trying to take you know, the right steps to get this stuff off the Internet. So it is yeah, I like that. I like yeah, that. Too. And uh, that's, just, that's, the, that's the right thing to do. It's the ethical thing to do. But this lawsuit, you know, if, if this lawsuit were to survive, then it would – there's just no way that Facebook and Microsoft, that all these companies can yeah. prevent third parties from it would radically alter the way the radically alter the way that the internet works if people could now yeah. be held liable just for transmitting content that they had no responsibility for creating right. just because somebody somewhere down the road can later subsequently allege that they were harmed by that content. I mean that would that would shut right. them down. Yeah. And they all have policies in place to prevent like child pornography and stuff, if there's images that look like they could be violating child pornography laws, they, they're, there's filters set that flag them and so that moderators can see them and take them down. And of course, they all have uh, systems in place where if, if they're notified, if somebody sends them a link or a copy of, of what's posted and say, hey, this violates any law, um, there's an immediate review 
and moderators could take that off. But this lawsuit is saying that even if they do that, they're still liable for having it up there at all. Well, we'll have to see how that plays out, but I bet you that's going to get thrown out pretty quickly. Um, okay, so you're listening to Kuza Claus Fighting for Justice Radio. If you just join us, we're going to move on to our next story, which is a $50 million wrongful death lawsuit filed in the Terrence Sterling police shooting. Um, Robert, is that your story? That's my story. And I'll have to tell you, you know, I mean, one story after the next. I mean, if we never did another one of these police shooting stories, uh, it it couldn't happen soon enough for me. This one just sounds just beyond the beyond. Um, Here we go. As long as you have criminals, you're going to have police shooting them. Well, okay. The problem is is that most of the stories we do don't involve criminals. And that's the situation here. Terrence Sterling, uh, a 23-year-old black man, was traveling through northwest D.C., on September 11th of this year, coming home from a bachelor party. Apparently, two uh, uh, patrol officers in a cruiser believed he was driving recklessly and gave chase. Um, What happened after that is somewhat murky because the officers involved did not have their body cameras turned on until after the shooting occurred. But according to an eyewitness, um, the motorcyclist pulled up next to her vehicle at a red light. The police officers tried to box him in with their vehicle, and when the motorcycle tried to veer around them, the windows opened up and a volley of shots were fired, killing the motorcyclist. Um, It later turned out that Terrence Sterling, the motorcyclist, was unarmed, did not have a criminal record, um, that in fact the police dispatcher had ordered the police officers to break off any pursuit because according to the policy in effect in D.C., reckless driving is not a sufficiently serious offense to warrant police pursuit. Um, so it looks like there's some there's some real problems for the officers involved in this case and also for the Metropolitan Police Force uh, because there seems like there were a number of protocols and policies that were breached and outright violated by these officers that led to the fatal shooting of this apparently unarmed and innocent civilian. Robert, why well, do you think this is happening innocent, over right? and over again? But I'm he, sorry? But they, tried to, they had their lights on, right? So he, he wasn't he wasn't stopping. Actually, according to the eyewitness, there was no lights. There was no lights. There was no sirens. That, in fact, the, vehicle, the police vehicle was entirely dark. So, so not even mar- headlights. So the motorcycle driver could have honestly, really not known that he was being pursued. I'm not sure about that, but the, I think the issue raised by the lawsuit is the fact that because the dispatchers had told them specifically call off any pursuit because it's not a sufficiently serious offense that anything that happened subsequent to that um, is a violation of policy and also would constitute uh, reckless conduct that resulted in this uh, motorcyclist's death. Robert, Mark, what was your question? Could have, could have wrote, resulted in other people's death, too. Innocent bystanders. Like We, we had a case uh, in, in either last week's show or the week before where uh, somebody was killed after a police pursuit and it was questionable as to whether that police pursuit was necessary, but that kind of thing happens. What was your comment, Mark? Yeah. yeah, my question was, Robert, why do you think this is happening over and over? We see this all the time, these police shootings for innocent people. They're, they're not armed. What do you think is going on? Well, what I think, I think uh, I, have a, I have my own theory, and it kind of has to do with the fact that it has to do with how I believe the police are trained. I mean, I think the police are trained that, you know, the one thing that they have that prevents them from being harmed on almost a daily basis as a result of interactions with people whose intentions they have no idea of judging 
is their authority. And they're sort of trained to assert that authority and to make whatever suspect or person that they're interacting with conform to that authority. And when they don't, whether that's by refusing to follow an order or whether that's by refusing to sit on the curb or whether that's by refusing to pull the vehicle to the side of the road or whether that was in the case of the woman in Texas refusing to extinguish a a cigarette or refusing to exit the vehicle. When that happens, the police, because of the way they're trained, the situation escalates because they see that as like a fundamental threat to their authority and therefore a fundamental threat to their own well-being. And that's why we see these situations escalate. You know, we've done a number of stories uh, on this show about police interactions with the mentally ill. People are having psychotic disturbances. They haven't taken their medications. These people are almost by definition incapable or unwilling to conform to instructions from a police officer, especially because the police officer is always shouting at them. They're always screaming at them um, when when they're trying to get them to do this. And I think it's that perceived challenge to the authority of the police officer that results in the escalation of these various interactions and incidences into into fatalities. I think it's a I training point issue. I really do. On that, though. I agree with that. And, and I want to point something out, though. I, this doesn't happen all the time. It's that we report on it. It hits the news when it happens. So you hear about plane crashes, but they don't – you hear about that a lot. But that doesn't mean they're happening all the time. And still, flying in an airplane is less dangerous than driving in a car uh, if you think about the number of trips, uh, the number of passengers versus uh, car travel and how many fatalities there are every year in in car travel. Well, I think – I think that's a good point, but I think there's an element of this story that that I have personal experience with. Terrence Sterling is a black is black. Okay, he's Af- he's an African American, young African American male. The police officers involved are white, and Northwest Washington D.C. is a very is a very posh and opulent area. I know that because I went to law school there at American University. Um, it's the wealthiest and it's the fanciest part of Washington, D.C. The vice presidential residence is there on the grounds of the Naval Observatory. And anybody seeing a young black man drive through that neighborhood at 4.30 a.m. in the morning on a motorcycle, whether he's driving recklessly or not, he is going to get the attention of law enforcement personnel. There's no doubt about that. And I think the question we're all asking ourselves as a society is, what is the role that race plays in these interactions? Not only in the instigation of the interaction, but also in the in the escalation of these interactions to fatalities. You know, I mean, people people don't stop for police officers a lot. Does that mean they deserve a death sentence? No, of course not. Nobody says that just because somebody right. refuses to stop for a police officer or refuses to pull their vehicle to the side, that police officers, as a matter of course, should be allowed to now use deadly force to compel compliance with that order. I mean, that's that's a crazy idea, right? Yet we have this situation here and we have the situation in other instances that have really been um, well publicized in this country where African-Americans have been the subject of this type of interaction. And is there a relationship? I I don't know personally. You know, I'm a white male, so I don't have these types of interactions typically with law enforcement. And if I do have any interactions, I'm very respectful. I follow all all the orders, and I'm just not in that adversarial or an antagonistic position with law enforcement the way perhaps young black males are? I don't know the answer to that question, but all I know is that I'm sick of hearing about people getting killed by police who are unarmed and who haven't really apparently engaged in anything illegal, much less something warranting, you know, lethal force. 
Absolutely. But I got to tell you, I'm a white guy, 49 years old. And if I were to be stopped anywhere in the United States by a police officer, I think that if I fail to comply with their instructions, that I would be at risk for being shot. And so when I get pulled over for speeding or something like that, my hands are on the wheel at 10 and 2 o'clock position, and I don't move. I just lower the window and wait for the officer to get there. And when the officer gets there, I listen carefully to what the officer says, and I do exactly what he says. And if I'm going to reach into my glove compartment, I tell him, my registration is in there. Can I get that? I, I, they understand from my demeanor and my actions that I understand that they are concerned about their own health and safety, and they it, it de-escalates things, and they, they see a person that's compliant. If anybody, black, white, green, from Mars, doesn't matter, if anybody fails to listen to the instructions of a police officer, they are taking a chance. Justified or not, they're taking a chance because these police officers, they get killed a lot. There are pe- police officers getting killed a lot, and every time when that happens, it's every police officer in the entire United States hears about it, and they they are they see videos of of police officers being literally executed at at normal traffic stops in their in their training courses and stuff. So they're aware of this, and they're concerned. So. If a if a and yes, a black a young black teenager or a young black male is going to be at a higher risk because the police are used to um, hearing reports of you know it's there's no question that the statistics the number of police officers shot by black people as a percentage of the population is higher than by white people so. So it's just a fact, and police are going to be more concerned. That doesn't mean they should pull out their gun and shoot anybody. But if you know that somebody has a gun, if a criminal in a drugstore points a gun at you and says, give me your money, you're not going to not listen. You're going to listen because you know that guy might shoot you. So I I submit that it's the same thing with getting pulled over. Just comply. Because if that's the police an interesting think, oh, analogy. this guy is going to comply, they, they, <laughs> I know, I know. It is, the, police are, the police are not criminals, but there's somebody with a gun. And anybody with a gun or a knife or a weapon, you just comply to try and avoid them using it and de-escalate the things. And if a person complies and the police see that, they're much, they, they, they're, their fear will go down, and it might prevent them from making a mistake. Now, in this particular case... In Washington D.C., it sounds like it was it was over the top, and maybe the the police and the, the police department are going to be responsible for that because um, the guy, I mean, to not have to not have uh, your lights on well, and everything else, this guy could have been not even knowing yeah. what's going on. He, they breached a lot. Well, it's an interesting discussion, but I think yeah. our guest has been waiting, and it's time for Beth Karras. Read. I agree. So let's move on. Uh, Beth Karras is an attorney and TV commentator who works as a correspondent for CNN and Court TV, and she's provided commentary on a number of high-profile cases, including the rape trial of Kobe Bryant and the Martha Stewart trial and various murder trials, including my old neighbor, Robert Blake, and Scott Peterson and Jody Arias. So her website is Karis on Crime, that's K-A-R-A-S on Crime.com, and it provides coverage and legal analysis of high-profile trials. Ms. Karis, welcome to the program. 
Well, thank you. I have been listening to your discussion. Very interesting. Yeah, I'm sorry we were running a little late, so we don't have a lot of time. But what do you think about these wrongful death lawsuits, you know, know, particularly with police? I... I I understand both sides here. When none of us knows what it's like unless we're standing in the shoes of those person who has a gun pointed at them. And while I I agree, I think you you were I, I don't know the I don't know the two voices, but um, one of you was saying that um, mm-hmm. doesn't matter who you are, you have to comply. You're absolutely right. But I do think that there's a bias, whether or not you know an officer is conscious of it. There's a bias. Um, that a black person is not going to be as compliant. Um, and so I, I do think that certain actions are um, interpreted perhaps, you know, a little too quickly sometimes on the part of um, an officer against a black person, a white officer against a black person. That said, I used to be a member of law enforcement. I think being a police officer is one of the most honorable jobs out there, and I am, you know, very pro-cop. But I recognize that some cops just, you know, are a little too quick to pull the trigger. You know, look at... Look at the Michael Slager case in South Carolina. I mean, what was that all about? And he shot Walter Scott running away from him. How was that? Right. And how how did the jury not convict him? Well, you know, I don't know. I don't know about that specific case. But the, the problem is a lot of times, well, these issues have to be resolved in the court of law and not in the court of public opinion. And when we're yes. sitting here judging – um, we're judging without all the facts, and maybe the, maybe there were some evidence and facts p- uh, produced for that jury that made them not convict. We just don't know. Right. Well, I think it um, was they, they were leaning heavily toward conviction. Okay, but let's take the Baltimore cops. I followed that case very the, the six cops very closely this past year. I even wrote an um, op-ed piece for the Baltimore Sun, which they published on the eve of the first bench trial after um, William Porter was. Um, went to trial, and he and it was a hung jury, and then there was never a jury trial again. It was three bench trials, and the judge, black judge, acquitted three officers in a row, and then the state dismissed the remaining three charges. But I always thought that that was a problematic case, that the um, state attorney just moved too quickly and was responding to the public outrage, that, that, that she did what the public wanted rather than do a thorough investigation. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, cops? of course. Yeah. That's where we, we, we actually covered that in depth on this show. And I think one of the things that that, that case pro- proved and that all of these cases prove, and every prosecutor knows this, because everybody says that the prosecutor in Baltimore moved too fast. And the reason people say that is because she actually even brought charges in the first place. <laughs> I mean, it's just is very rare to have a criminal charge ever lodged against a police officer as a result of an allegedly unjustified shooting. It's very, very unusual. And it's unusual usual because it's typically unsuccessful. It was unsuccessful in uh, in, in Baltimore. It was, it's been unsuccessful in the other well-publicized incidents. And there's a grand jury looking at this D.C. case, but whether they ever return an indictment, who knows? And if the indictment is returned, whether anybody ever convicts these cops, very, very low chances of that. Right, right. And, and usually been, there's a special prosecutor, too, don't you think? I mean, I was very surprised that Marilyn Mosby, for example, in Baltimore was going to prosecute the very, you know, cops from the very department she has to rely so heavily on. Usually you, you would need right. somebody removed, I would think. Yeah, that's very strange. And a problem, a problem, problem with it is case. that if they, if they bring the case and they lose, they look really bad and incompetent, whereas if they just don't bring the case at all, they might get some flack, but they say, hey, the evidence didn't approve it and did, did, didn't uh, support criminal charges. We, we can't 
we can't justify the expense of bringing that case uh, without beyond reasonable doubt evidence, and we didn't have it. Right. So they they have less criticism. Politically, it, it doesn't look as bad. And with that, we're going to have to wrap it up. We're, we're over. But uh, I, I definitely appreciate you joining us for the show, and I remind our listeners to check out Beth's website at karasoncrime.com, K-A-R-A-S oncrime.com. And check out our website. You can look at our website at kuzyklaw.com, K-U-Z-Y-K-L-A-W.com. And at the bottom, you can click the link that leads to our podcasts. And you can go to iTunes blogtalkradio.com slash kuzyklaw to see that. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next, next week. Thanks for listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio with Robert, Mark, and Reed. Remember to check us out at KuzikLaw.com. That's KuzikLaw.com. Each week, we analyze civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and all legal current events. Thanks for listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.